Welcome back to the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Michael Lenz. And we're here to talk about housing policy and research that we can all use to make our cities more affordable and equitable. If you like the show and want to support us, please be sure to give the Housing Voice Podcast a review. The main place to do that is Apple, but there are a few other options out there as well. Last time I asked folks to give a rating, this time it's a review. I'm doing my best to keep it simple. And in that spirit, let's get to the interview. Today we are joined by our first Canadian guest, to my knowledge, or at least the first one who definitely lives and works there now, um, and that is Dr. Martine August. She received her PhD in planning from the University of Toronto and is now an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Thanks for coming on the show, Martine. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. And Mike, you want to say hi to? Hello, Dr. August. Welcome to our podcast. Um, hello, listeners. And before I start with our questions, uh, I I was doing a little research because I don't know nearly enough about Canada generally, and certainly not the University of Waterloo. And I found out that the university is further south than Portland, Oregon. Um, I, I just want to confirm that because I checked it on the map several times and I'm still not entirely sure that I believe it. It just doesn't make sense. Is that is that actually accurate? I mean, I trust your map reading skills. I'm sure you got it. <laughs> Okay, okay. I she, guess. She's not a professor of geography. Um, I know, I She's know, not a professor of, of Portland studies, you know? I have it in my notes. We are not here to talk about geography, but I did want to ask. Uh, so with Dr. August here, we're, we're going to actually discuss her recent publication in the Journal of Urban Affairs, which is titled The Financialization of Canadian Multifamily Rental Housing from Trailer to Tower. So let's just start with the obvious questions. Um, what is financialization and how does that term apply to housing specifically? Yeah, so financialization refers to this uh, shift in the global economy that's been underway for the past several decades in which finance has been taking an increasingly dominant role in the operations of capitalism. So. Uh, scholars of financialization explain how in instead of making money through production, like if a capitalist wants to accumulate uh, capital if through production, they would build a factory and hire a bunch of workers and make stuff. Uh, with financialization, we're increasingly seeing uh, accumulation happening through financial channels and investment in financial assets. In the paper, I use a definition by Albers, uh, Manuel Albers, which I'll read out because I think it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. He, he defines it as the increasing dominance of financial actors, practices, measurements, and narratives at various scales, resulting in a structural transformation of economies, firms, including finance, financial institutions, states, and households. So I like his definition because it highlights how this growing role for finance leads to structural changes. He calls it structural transformation. And in my work, I've seen how financialization of multifamily housing, apartment buildings, um, is transforming life for people in those buildings and transforming that industry. So you asked about um, how does this term apply to housing? In my research looking at multifamily housing, I actually define the financialization of multifamily housing quite narrowly. I look basically at the, uh, the purchase of apartment buildings by financial firms and then call those firms financialized landlords. 
So these include things like REITs, real estate investment trusts, uh, publicly listed real estate companies, institutional investors, uh, asset managers, private equity. So I define it this way because when these types of firms purchase apartments, they turn these apartments into investment products for investors. So suddenly there's this new access uh, to incomes from apartments for investors. And this changes the way that apartment buildings are managed. It prioritizes this, the goal of maximizing profits uh, for investors and value for shareholders. And as a result, it deprioritizes other goals that we might have for housing. And in, in what way is that different from, you know, just like a mom and pop landlord or even a you know, medium sized but non-financialized landlord? Like, how do you distinguish, you know, clearly any landlord is, is in it for investment. And so how is the financialization operating differently? And maybe this can lead us into a discussion of who's benefiting from this and what the, the harms are from it as well. Yeah, so the difference is that that's an interesting question. And I think the difference isn't always extremely clear cut. Mm -hmm. And it, it's certainly the case that any landlord is in it to make money, you know, not a social housing landlord, nonprofit landlord. Right, right. Um, but the, there's, a, I think, a qualitative difference, at least this is what I've been trying to look at in my research, in the way that buildings are being managed and operated by financial firms. Um, they're bigger uh, and they have ac access to vast amounts of capital, unlike smaller firms and kind of like precursor real estate companies that were around beforehand. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of like this last point that I just made is that they're more oriented towards uh, prioritizing investor profits. It's kind of like structurally built into the way these firms uh, operate, right? They have to, you know, if you're a real estate investment trust, you have to increase net asset value and generate um, distributions for your investors. That's the objective of, of why you operate. If, if you don't, if the advisors of a real estate investment trust don't do that, then they're then the firm's going to go under, right? They're going to lose money. They'll lose executive compensation. The value of their shares or units, as they're called, uh, when it comes to REITs, will go down. And so there is this sort of like built-in or baked-in um, uh, compulsion driving them to prioritize mm -hmm. these things, say, above others. And so there's a, it, it's certainly the case that, you know, the way capitalism operates, you have uh, competition compels firms to uh, adopt similar practices, right? And so you do see the adoption of this similar types of business strategies uh, that financial firms have innovated to extract more value from uh, apartments. You certainly see those strategies being used by financial and non-financial firms alike. So in this sense, so in that way, you might say it doesn't really matter how you classify this firm if they're up to the same types of strategies, which then, you know, I argue those are bad because they can have negative impacts on people. Uh, but I do think that the, the trends that we're looking at are being driven by this shift towards financialization. It, it certainly seems that way. I'm, a couple terms that kind of popped into my head while you were saying that were like this fiduciary duty and like shareholder value. Is that kind of what this is getting at? Where like, if you're just a mom and pop, you know, yeah, you're trying to make money, but you're not trying to like, necessarily maximize profits in the same way, you know, quarter to quarter in particular, maybe you just kind of have a, lo a longer term view. Um, you know, maybe it's sort of analogous to like a lifestyle 
uh, business as opposed to like a, a high growth business. If you're familiar with those distinctions, someone who just like owns a popular bakery or something and like maybe they have interest for franchising it or, or whatever, but they're just like, no, nah, I'm like, I'm happy making enough to live off of and like takes a vacation sometimes. And I don't, I don't really care about maximizing my profits. Um, and, you know, in the case of housing, that would mean, you know, getting as much revenue basically out of tenants as I possibly can. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. I think that, I mean, industry watchers would say something similar. I was trying, I'm trying to understand in my research how people who are in this industry view it. And they certainly point to a shift that's happened with the rise of big institutions, real estate investment trusts, uh, these financial players in the field are making the argument, and I quote, um, I quote some in my paper who say that there's a difference in the way that they're trying to extract more value than the than the mom and pops did. Um, that, but of course, that doesn't mean that that all mom and pop operations were equivalent to the. I think you said a bakery or something. That's something, the lifestyle business where somebody's doing it for the love of baking rather than the, for the love of maximizing returns. I think you, I think you could get all sorts of diversity there, whether it's in mom and pop, small real estate companies, and so on. So one thing I try to avoid doing in my research is um, looking upon those smaller scale landlords as somehow like better or kinder or gentler. Um, or it's wishing for some return to the past because it's certainly the case that lots of people in buildings that have been acquired by financialized landlords don't love the former slumlord, <laughs> you know, that maybe was operating their place. But there are cases where somebody is operating uh, a rental property and is not trying to squeeze every last penny out of it. And one of the things that we see with these financial firms is that they're quite expert at squeezing every last drop of potential profit that they can from those buildings in new ways. And that, like I say in the papers, is sort of changing the, the industry. So Martine, you were talking about uh, the, the differences in, in profit maximization that is likely to be between different classes of landlords. And um, you know, one hypothesis in which you know, I think you've tested is the extent to which uh, corporate landlords are, you know, as you just said, kind of squeezing the last penny and, you know, have, um, you know, because of various requirements are more likely to, you know, really profit maximize at the exclusion of, of other uh, needs or, or ideas. And, you know, one thing I wanted to, to throw out there is like the extent to which we would, you know, we really want to rest housing policy or or housing desired outcomes based on kind of a reality or assumption that we have a group of landlords, if we think about the old times, that really aren't good at profit maximizing, that really aren't squeezing um, every penny. Like, how do we think about policy in that sort of space? It's an interesting question. I think um, there's a real difference between making profits and being a good landlord uh, I don't think that extracting maximum value from a building is a sign that you're a good landlord or creating uh, good properties, creating a good experience for people living in those homes. Um, really, what you're doing is creating a lot of money for sort of a middleman in the operation, right? Where you've got tenants and then you've got all these investors and landlords and they're trying to extract more value from these properties in order to deliver a greater share of basically like the tenant's wealth and income to these investors who have inserted themselves into the process. 
I don't think they're necessary at all. You know, we never used to have financialized landlords. Uh, we didn't have real estate investment trusts acquiring rental housing. Um, and what they're in it for is what they can get out of it, not what they're bringing to it. So your question is kind of about policy. And if we're trying to think of a, a better world or a better housing system, I don't think that my ideal housing system would have a place for these types of firms. They're just not necessary. And I think it's even the case that in some sectors, it's been shown that financial or for-profit involvement in, in types of housing sectors leads to worse outcomes for people. This is one of the things that's sort of been established in the nursing home and retirement sector, right? That there's much worse outcomes uh, for workers and for, for elderly people living in those homes in for-profit uh, firms. And it, recent research has shown that like private equity firms, like, uh, ownership leads to even worse outcomes and a greater chance of death. So in this case, those firms that are great at extracting maximum value from properties and the people who live at them are not doing a good job making those places good places to live, literally, <laughs> because death is like one of the outcomes of their acquisition of, of homes. Uh, and so it's a strong case really for um, for having housing not be owned by these types of firms, decommodifying housing, having more like uh, housing that's not subject to these pressures of the for-profit ownership. This might be a good place to refer back to some some data in the paper. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the scale of these financialized landlords is? Uh, you did a lot of, you know, digging into financial reports and a whole bunch of other things just to see how this has changed. And I think it really does illustrate how, how big a shift it has been over a pretty short time. Yeah, so I looked at uh, real estate investment trusts as one type of financialized landlord, as I call them. For a little bit of background, REITs are trusts that pool capital uh, together from investors. And then they use that capital to buy portfolios of buildings, uh, real estate of some kind. And then the managers or the advisors of the real estate investment trust, they know the business and they try to manage that portfolio often aggressively in order to drive those profits for their investors. Mm -hmm. um, so REITs are one of the types of financial vehicles that bring together investors with apartments. They're not the only kind. In Canada, uh, they were established in our legislation in 1993. The first REITs to invest in multifamily housing were launched in 1997. And so from the year before that, from 1996 until today, uh, REITs have gone from owning zero to over 194,000 wow. uh, apartment suites in Canada. So the line is kind of like going up. <laughs> if and you look and at what my paper. share of the multifamily stock is that? So that's about 10% okay. of the mm. private uh, purpose-built multifamily stock. And then... It's not just REITs. I'm in, when I first described how I defined financialization, I talked about other types of financial vehicles. If you include those like asset managers, private equity, uh, and so on, the biggest uh, 25 financial firms in Canada owns about 20% of all. Wow. That's including REITs. So about 330,000 suites. And that's just the top 25 biggest financial firms. So I think it's a very conservative estimate of financialization of all ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of smaller firms that when you add it up would increase the financialized ownership. So the big trend that I see in my paper really is like an increased consolidation over the last 20, 30 years, consolidation of multifamily ownership under 
bigger and bigger firms owning more and more, Mm -hmm. and then an increase in financial firms among those big firms. You describe a couple or three different um, investment types. You sort of categorize these different um, financialized investments, and I think this applies to non-financialized housing as well, but you call them core value add and opportunistic. Um, And I think that's kind of one of the key insights here. Can you just give us a little bit of background on what those different um, investment types entail, what, what, those, what those things mean and what, what happens when those types of investments are made? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that you like that uh, part of the paper. I, so I get that kind of language from uh, these firms themselves who talk about different types of properties and different types of investment strategies that they use in those types of properties. So core refers to properties that are... Um, like full of tenants, luxury type of apartment building, making steady rents. A core investment is one in a building like that, which is going to leave you stable returns, but they're going to be, you know, low and the risk is low. Right. So it's the type of building that, you know, a pension fund institutional investor would be interested in just steady money, but not a lot of risk. And then next up on the kind of like, in terms of risk is a value add property uh, and a value add strategy, value add, Buildings would be maybe in like more marginal parts of cities. Perhaps they would need a little bit more investment. Maybe there's these neglected ones owned by these slumlords that we were talking about. Uh, and so it's a bit riskier for uh, those to be acquired, but there's a greater opportunity to make bigger returns. And so this is, I think, where you see a lot of the interest by financial landlords is in the value add space. And they call it value add because there's an opportunity to add value for investors. And the way that this is done is using these techniques that I talk about in the paper, uh, which firms call repositioning, repositioning a building in the market to be more profitable for investors. And they do that by trying to raise the revenues and decrease the expenses. They do this by trying to change the tenant profile uh, to get people who are paying uh, higher rents. Often there's renovation involved. And then sometimes like major investments in in, uh, the building to make it run more efficiently, that kind of thing. I, I feel like the the your, your point about this is value add for the investors, not the tenants, is an important one too. <laughs> it took me a minute to realize that when I, yeah. <laughs> I was reading about it, right? Uh, but that's certainly what they're talking about. There, and there yeah. is money there to be made. And so this is kind of like looking at a, a they would say that the building's being um, like under maintained by the existing owners because they're not extracting every last uh, penny from it. And if you come in with a value add strategy, you can submeter the utilities, get the tenants paying their utilities every month. You can start adding fees to use the um, laundry. You can add fees for the party room, for parking, for whatever types of storage spaces you have in the unit, just monetizing every aspect of life in that building. And they're very good at rolling this stuff out and know how to do it in a systematic way. And so that's kind of how you it's like a recipe that you can add value to these buildings and then the third kind of category is opportunistic these would be like a much higher risk and then you know greater return that you get if you take that risk on Uh, it might refer to like a building in an emerging site or maybe it's like vacant or abandoned Mm -hmm. and in my research i sort of try to put these three categories uh associate them with certain geographies so i'll associate a core investment strategy with like major markets in Canada. We have fewer of them, but it would be like hot parts of downtown Toronto or Vancouver, Montreal. And then the value add would refer to like 
more marginal parts of major markets, secondary and tertiary towns and cities. And then opportunistic in this case, I argue that that's an approach that's used in resource extraction areas in the far north in Canada, where things are a bit more volatile, but there's a chance to make big bucks if you get in there at the right time. Yeah, I think we've probably seen that in near your hometown, but um, in like North Dakota, I've definitely read about these kinds of things where because of all the, the oil and gas um, extraction going on there. They've just got, you know, hordes of youngish men going there and working in no housing. And so they're charging $1,800 a month to live in like a trailer, that kind of thing. That's like the extremely opportunistic. And if it didn't work out, you'd make nothing at all. But if you got there at the right time, you could make a, a ton of money off of that kind of thing. There's one uh, firm here that was, it's now been acquired by other firms, but called Northern Property REIT. And their, their uh, papers said, there's gold in them, there hills. And they mm. talked about this opportunity to follow uh, extraction, mining and this type of thing. And they referred it to themselves as like mining these places as well for more profits um, by following along after the, you know, after you strike, it's the people that come afterwards and start providing housing uh, that really are, are making big money off of those places. But then it does go belly up. So some of the com- uh the REITs in Canada that have focused exclusively on those resource zones have had to diversify because, you know, mm-hmm. um, once it goes belly up, they suddenly can't be uh, making those big rents in those places. Yeah. But you talked about how, you know, mom and pops and these smaller landlords are not necessarily good actors in many cases. Um, they're sometimes run inefficiently and, and those benefits can accrue to tenants in various ways. But I think there's been a, a sort of a discourse online and in housing spaces uh, really recently, actually, about whether whether more concentrated ownership um, might be good. And it's it's a little bit of a, a, you know, a hot take kind of thinking on this issue. But I do think there's it's an interesting perspective that. Just for example, when I see tenant protections like stronger rent stabilization or um, restrictions on conversion of use of multifamily units into condos or or hotels or that kind of thing, what you very often hear is not, you know, the big REIT is going to make less money. It's the mom and pop landlords are going to, you know, lose their their sole investment, their nest egg, whatever. And I feel like they're often used as this more sympathetic shield to prevent stronger tenant protections. And so there's this argument, which I'm sympathetic to. I don't know if I fully believe it, um, but I could see it it being the case that if you did have kind of larger, still many, still a large number of, of landlords, like hundreds of them, thousands of them across the country, but each of them owns, you know, thousands of units, perhaps, it might actually be easier to regulate them because they're not as sympathetic um, and we don't view them as these people who are not just trying to earn money but like depend on these properties and the profit maximization so i'm curious just what how you think about that if you're familiar with that discourse and how it how it hits you i don't see a strong argument for having concentrated ownership among huge corporate landlords whether they're you know investor-backed landlords, financial landlords or not. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think it would be fine to have 
a lot of state ownership or decommodified ownership of housing, that would be great. But I mean, the way that big corporate firms and financial firms operate their housing, uh, it, it's not done in the interests of tenants. And there's a lot of profit taking that tends to harm tenants is kind of the big argument I'm making. And just to, to clarify, I, I want to be clear that I think that the idea behind that argument is, well, if we just recognize these people as in it for profit and and we don't have to worry ourselves so much about their nest egg and their their you know sole income we maybe can have these stronger policies there would be more political support for stronger protections so that we create these guardrails and we're not relying on inefficiencies um, of smaller landlords or you know whatever else it would take to i mean ultimately we have to just i think if we want to have better outcomes for tenants we just have to have policies in place that require that regardless of who owns the property and so that's sort of what i'm getting at and and i don't think that takes away from regulation uh that that limits financialized ownership specifically but that's that's sort of and as i said i'm I'm sort of devil's advocate here. I don't fully believe this, but I but I think it's an interesting perspective. And I just feel like we, and I know you're not doing this, but we often treat mom and pops as like inherently better. And and I think a lot of the, the worst stories you hear about abuses of tenants actually come from those smaller ones, even if in the aggregate, it's, it's maybe not as bad as, as the REITs are doing. I think it's a dangerous argument to put forward because it's sort of suggesting that we would have to forestall advocacy or activism around any type of tenant protections until we get to a point where it might be more uh, politically saleable to people who want to defend small-scale landlords. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of ifs there. To me, I think we need to fight for the tenant protections now and uh, small landlords be damned. I just don't think that there's any reason to be too concerned about protecting somebody's nest egg. Uh, If you acquire a property as an investment and plan to make money off of other people's, you know, monthly paychecks, and then you don't, too bad for you. It's an, <laughs> that's what you get when you're an investor. Yeah. And so I, I don't see, I have zero sympathy for uh, the mom and pop landlord. Uh, they're making a choice to acquire an income property. They could live in that if they want, or they could sell it if it's not making them the return that they seek. Yeah. Um, but trying to make an argument that we need to try to uh, cons- concentrate ownership amongst a lot of landlord overlords, and only then will we be able to fight for the protections that we need, which I don't think is going to happen when you have extremely powerful real estate interests fighting against that type of regulation. Right. I do think that's one, I, of the, the, one of the biggest arguments against it is like, well, they're maybe less sympathetic, but that doesn't mean that they're less powerful. The corporate tax rate in the U.S. would <laughs> probably be a good indicator. Yeah. They're certainly powerful, and uh, and they're I mean, they're quite oriented towards trying to limit uh, pre- tenant protections and rent control. It's certainly the case in my own research. I found that these firms are eager uh, to defend uh, vacancy decontrol, for example, and the deregulation of rent controls that happened here in the late '90s. They love that. That's exactly what's making them their business so profitable. And um, we know that you know, wealthy actors have the ear of government and have influence in our society. This is like kind of the ethics of the, the 
This is what we know from studying urban politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, the real estate industry is powerful. Planners, as planners, we know this. And so I certainly wouldn't try to hope for a future where we could bank on the the villainization of big landlords as a way to sneak in rent control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your your earlier point too about how, you know, we should just pursue this stuff, mom and pops be damned is is well taken. And I really do think there's there's something unique about real estate investment and, and landlording in particular, where there's just this expectation that it should only go up in, in value. Um, other types of investments, there's this understanding that you're taking a risk and maybe you win, maybe you lose. But, you know, I think we've seen this with the COVID-19 pandemic and eviction protections and everything. There's there's this feeling of like values should just continuously go up. It should always be profitable. And if ever that changes, government needs to step in and, and protect landlords against any form of losses. And I think that's a really harmful um, approach to all of this. Uh, well, since you since you brought up vacancy decontrol, maybe we can move on to that. So you identified in your paper that rent controls are a sort of deterrent to financialized acquisition with the provinces where rent control exists or where it's stronger, having a smaller share of financialized units relative to their national share of multifamily overall. And you make a point not to lay all of this at the feet of rent control. There are things like housing and labor demand, the presence of more or less social housing, language barriers, other things like that also likely playing a role. Uh, but can you explain a little bit about why rent control discourages this financialization and, and share maybe some of the provincial numbers if you have those on hand? Yeah, so when um, right before REITs were first launched in Canada, we had big changes in our most populous province of Ontario, um, where there was a lot of deregulation of tenant protections. So this vacancy decontrol was launched at the time. So we used to have, have rent control where when a unit turned over, when it became empty or vacant, uh, the rent stayed the same level. Right. Um, and then in 97, we got this vacancy decontrol where a unit becomes vacant and landlords can raise rent by any amount. Yeah. So in the lead up to this, the first real estate investment trusts were launched citing this impending legislation. And just just to interject, because I feel like this is a very interesting and Orwellian, uh, this is the Tenant Protection Act, right? It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what they called this legislation that allowed rents to be increased by, you know, whatever amount the landlord pleases. Okay, please continue. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, uh, and so um, and in their uh, kind of like, uh, founding documents these firms trying to attract investors described how the landscape of tenant protections and rent regulations was about to change mm -hmm. and they cite this impending legislation and say there is a new opportunity ahead of us to make money from apartments which hasn't been there before and they're talking about vacancy decontrol and in fact i cite this in the paper the um deputy minister uh, responsible for housing in the province of ontario who helped usher this legislation through this tenant protection act leaves government and forms as the CEO, the second residential uh, REIT in that the is province. I, I remember it's, taking notes on that and just putting like eight exclamation marks. <laughs> next yeah, to exactly. That so you can see like the, the very clear link here between like state withdrawal um, or deregulation and then uh, this new opportunity created for the private sector and kind of finance coming in and filling this void. And so 
Vacancy deed control is important to these firms. Uh, we have it in Ontario and other provinces as well, uh, but it allows them to take units and gives this sort of incentive to make units vacant, particularly in places where people have maybe been living there for a long time and are paying a low rent, particularly in local markets where gentrification pressures have created a rent gap, yeah. such, that, such that if you get that person out, you can increase their rent dramatically. And so trying to capitalize on this, capitalize on vacancy decontrol, push for those, they call them unit turnovers, is really like one of the key ways that these firms uh, make their money. And the CEO of Starlight Investments, the biggest landlord in Canada, he at a recent conference said, the, the, the money and returns are made in the units when the units turn over. This is a quote I cite twice in my paper because to me it just exposes the way that the profits of these firms mm -hmm. are premised on tenant displacement and dispossession. Because the, the, the money and returns are made when, in the units when they turn over, so it's really contingent on getting people out. And so for this reason, like to answer your question, this is why rent control is so very important because it's really at the basis of how these firms make money. They're trying to raise revenues and drop expenses. And when you're raising revenues, the biggest way to do that is from the pockets of tenants, whether it's through um, just annual increases. We have a guideline increase you're allowed every month, whether it's through above guideline increases, which are allowed here for major capital repairs. That's similar to lots of places or whether it's by pursuing these vacancies that allow you to raise rent to the top of the market. And so I suspected in my work that firms might be drawn to areas of the country where there was weaker tenant protection. And in the paper, I have a map here that looks at the different provinces. There's 10 provinces in Canada and uh, three territories in the north. And the provinces that have rent control have uh, less penetration by real estate investment trusts than you would expect given their share of the country's apartments. And in the provinces that have weak uh, rent control like Ontario or no rent control, they have a higher proportion of re-owned suites than you would expect given their proportion of Canada's apartment suites. I wanted to push, I guess there's two, there's two things that, that I think flow from this that, you know, I think that are, are forms of pushback that you would get from people who are less friendly to rent control or, or, or more friendly to, you know, housing as a functioning market, right? And I'll take the first one and then we can get to the second later. The first one is that, you know, this idea of displacement as being so profitable rests, you know, on the fact that, this rent control coupled with vacancy decontrol is providing this big gap, as you say, between what the landlord can get with the incumbent tenant and somebody out in the in the market once this unit turns over. So, you know, what do you say to the fact that like rent control is artificially creating this profit margin that itself rests on on this form of displacement? I mean, I guess if you believe that rents are artificially low and that the rents that they raise it to are somehow like natural or real or in any well, way. Well, I mean, but rent control is income. rent control is intentionally keeping it below. Our listeners can't see my arms. They're going everywhere. Are going crazy. <laughs> um, uh, rent control is rent control is keeping you know that that rent below a particular ceiling, right? And and so 
you know, I'm not saying that the market rent is the natural, you know, beautiful order of things, but it's what the landlord can get. Yeah. And, and I mean, what it ends up doing is pushing people out of their homes and allocating housing based on, you know, like the most that people can pay, whether they're paying what they can afford or whether they're uh, paying a lot more than they can afford and sort of being squeezed for that ink for that rent every month. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't align myself with the the anti-rent control folks, obviously. Okay. You know, your response also to me brings up, maybe because my head is already in, in this, this space as like, you know, another big pushback from the housing market proponents, which is that it's not the financialization of housing that's creating some kind of profit. It's that we have a scarce resource, that being housing, that is forcing, you know, this hypothetical person that you're saying that is being squeezed for every last penny that they can be squeezed for. It's that scarcity in the housing market of this product housing, coupled with this high level of demand by this individual and other people, that's making these profits, you know, possible. So some people would say, give these corporate landlords a bunch of competition in the form of a bunch more housing, right? And that then that's going to kind of dilute the value of the asset. And I, I think, you know, you, you provide evidence that like these investment trusts know that housing's not just going to fall from the trees. It's a, this is a scarce resource. So how do you, how do you think about housing supply, housing production as relating to this problem? Yeah. Uh, one. So one of the things that you're referring to that I mentioned in the paper is the way that these firms are knowingly trying to capitalize on the scarcity of affordable housing supply in Canada, which isn't too different probably mm. from the scarcity of affordable housing supply in other places. So we had like the withdrawal of state involvement in federal uh, federally in social housing around the same time that we had this deregulation in the 90s in Canada, the federal government like stepped out of providing public housing. And so year after year, you have this decline or an absence of social housing units that would be affordable coming online that would provide this supply that's really missing of affordable homes that would provide secure tenure and allow people to live in, in all sorts of neighborhoods and pay affordable rents. So that supply is definitely missing. And it continues to be missing. And a lot of the firms, I mean, you could pick up the reports of any firm and they'll explain to their investors that this market, multifamily housing, is strong because there are barriers to new supply and there's a limited number of uh, buildings out there. And that's why they're trying to consolidate ownership of them because they can make a lot of money when they have, particularly, you know, when they have like pseudo monopolistic control and can uh, raise rents as much as they want and so on. And so it's certainly the case that there's a, a limited supply of affordable housing. But where I think there gets to be a sort of a disagreement with what I'm writing about and what I, I think the, the arguments that you're referring to are this notion that if you just build more supply, then the situation will sort itself out. And so this is, you know, a big argument right now in, in planning and in urban studies more generally. But we can we can see that it's not happening. You know, there's lots of vacant homes 
there's lots of supply. There's more supply uh, that we need to house all the people that don't have housing. But it's just, it's more expensive. It's at the luxury end. It's being acquired by speculators. It's being acquired to launder money. It's being acquired as some call it like as a safety deposit box for the rich. And so it's not supply that is contributing to providing affordable housing for people who need it. And we could continue to build luxury condos in the center or the edge of cities till the cows come home and we can sit back and wait to see if housing becomes more affordable. I mean, it doesn't seem to be happening. To be totally candid, I think we'll just disagree on some of that on like the the importance of supply and whether we're building enough housing. And I don't think we have to go down that road because I think the financialization aspect of this is is interesting on in its own right and I think has its own, you know, unique role Absolutely. to play. And so to dig into this a little further, I'm curious we can at least acknowledge that there's not enough housing being built, even if we disagree somewhat on on whether it's essential that it all be or mostly be um, at the lower income level or moderate income level. But putting that aside, like we agree that su- the supply matters, but financialization seems to be doing kind of maybe exacerbating some of these changes. Like, so taking it as a given that we don't have enough housing, if financialization were not a problem that had grown or financialization had not increased overall over the past two decades, like how would things look different, I guess, is maybe a better way of putting that question. If, if the supply problem was still, you know, otherwise the same. That's a really good question because these firms aren't contributing to new supply. So um, what they're just doing is acquiring existing structures and making them more profitable for investors by raising rents on existing tenants through various strategies. In some cases, upgrading those properties where gentrification Mm -hmm. pressures allow it, turning them into like a more luxury style rental and then increasing rents even more. So really what financial firms are doing is increasing uh, the prices of rental housing, you know, the rent levels and and then decreasing affordability. So contributing to these problems of affordability uh, that we're seeing. So they're one of the forces contributing to affordability problems in our cities. So in that sense, if they weren't around, I don't think this would be happening to the same degree or with the same like precision, with the same um, level of sophistication that these firms, sophistication right, right. and sort of focus on like it's this. Their, it is their business model. It's their business model. One of the big firms here called Timber Creek Asset Management, they recently rebranded to call themselves Hazelview. <laughs> they call I kind of preferred Timber Creek. It made me think of, forests. you know, yeah. uh, hanging out with some big, tall trees in the Canadian forest. Yeah, it sounds a little like Hazelview. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, but uh, they, they call their process putting a building through a car wash. So they say they take an under an undermanaged or undervalued asset and who doesn't uh, like living at the car wash <laughs> <laughs> pretty much anybody in the timber creek building i would say uh and they uh try to you know turn over the tenants renovate common areas upgrade the landscaping invest in certain major capital repairs that will allow them to apply for above guideline increases to the rent and then they try to uh then sell that building which has sort of been stabilized to um, an institutional investor 
And so they call that putting the building through a car wash. And if you're a tenant living in that building, what you're seeing is rent increases, you're living in a construction site. In some cases, you're um, experiencing all sorts of like pressures and harassment to push you out of your home. Uh, that can be very frustrating and affect people's satisfaction with their building, affect their, their health, physical health and mental health. And then in some cases, well, it has material impacts too when they end up having to pay more for their rent. And then sometimes people end up leaving and losing the connection that they had to their community and, and so on. I guess the extreme opposite of that, of course, is is a landlord that lets their units or properties fall into disrepair for long periods of time, right? And so you don't necessarily want that, you know, kind of cosmetic car wash that's supposed that's part engendered to just extract higher rents but you also don't want decay and you know even unsafe housing and kind of the quote-unquote slumlord behavior so like um you know you do talk a little bit in the paper about how there was in kind of the before times if you will there was you know pretty low repair levels or upkeep problems were, were rather persistent like where do you see finding that balance yeah, that's a good question. And it's certainly not good to have landlords neglecting buildings or, you know, not properly uh, repairing them. Before kind of answering that question, though, I just want to point out something really interesting that you see happening all the time in these buildings, which is that financial firms don't necessarily invest in maintenance and repairs. And in fact, they will often ignore maintenance requests from longstanding tenants in a bid to try to push them out. So it can lead to this situation where people who've been in this building forever can't get their stuff fixed, even though they're living in a construction site and hearing units all around them get renovated and repaired. And they know that theirs is only getting right. gonna get renovated and repaired once they're out for the next mm. person. Mm. So there is not necessarily the case that the living environment becomes better for existing tenants, but even if it becomes better for the next person or if you're concerned about like the asset being maintained, the building being up kept. Uh, I kind of think of this using this kind of like false, um, this false distinction that Tom Slater and James DePhilippus and others have pointed to between like gentrification and decline, mm. right? Mm. Where you often get this argument that, well, you know, gentrification, we might lose a couple people in the neighborhood, it might transform it socially, but it's better than letting it fall apart or be some burned out husk of a mm -hmm. former city. Yeah. And I think that a lot of critical urban scholars are trying to push people to ask why we uh, can't have upkeep and can't have proper care for buildings without it coming along with the displacement of incumbent residents who, you right. know, oftentimes have been through the bad days in yeah. a building or in a neighborhood and then get pushed out right before the improvements come. So speaking now, like specifically about housing, about rental housing, I think the bigger question to ask is like, why do we let landlords who own these buildings and collect rent every month? Maybe it's like the lazy landlord or maybe it's the mom and pop who is a slumlord. Why do we let them get away with that? Can we not uh, do a better job with um, property standards and ensuring that buildings are maintained properly? If you own a house, you should fix it up. You're collecting rents from people, you should have a capital repair fund. I will say that if you live in cooperative housing or if you live in public housing, the managers of that are required to put away a certain amount of money every year into a capital mm -hmm. repair fund 
and then to fix the roof, to fix the boiler, to maintain these things. It's a part of uh, running the property. And so when landlords don't do that, they're not doing their job properly. And I, so I, I like to point that out rather than celebrating financialized landlords who come along, finally do this sometimes like uh, long overdue repair, uh, but then only do it because it can be used to like line the pockets of their investors and their and their executives. Yeah, we, we actually at the Lewis Center, we had an event. Um, we have our quarterly housing equity and community series event. And uh, that one was on this question of like, we're we're good at talking protections and like enacting new rules and updating the policies. We're not so good at actually enforcing them. Um, and that mm. includes these building code enforcement things where, you know, the rules are all on the books that you can't, you know, let people's water turn off or not have hot water, not have electricity, those kinds of things. But actually following through on the enforcement is something we almost nowhere really does very well. All right. Well, I know we got to let you go, but uh, I always want to make sure to ask, is there anything in in this work you're doing, any unanswered questions you still have or anything you wish we would have asked that you still wanted to, to bring up? I think you guys asked a lot of questions and uh, I hope that, I don't know, I hope you enjoy talking about financialization of multifamily housing. It's definitely something that I love talking about. So it's really nice of you to invite me on your show to chat about it. Oh, we're so glad to have you. And uh, thank you very, very much for talking about it with us. We really liked having you on. Yes, it's been fantastic, Martin. And um, Shane and I don't probably come with anywhere near, I know we don't have anywhere near the depth <laughs> of, of knowledge on this particular topic. This is pretty far afield for us. So I hope we didn't ask any obviously stupid questions. And I'm proud that we didn't say something like, you know, how is this, you know, applicable to the United States? Because it seemed pr you know, pretty obvious along the way that this <laughs> is very clearly uh, applicable to the United States. And we didn't even need to ask that. Our markets are shockingly similar, our yes. housing yes. markets and policy. Yes. yes. Episode six is a wrap. Thank you again to Dr. August for the conversation today. The show notes have any citations or papers we mentioned during the interview, and you can also find our own notes on the paper and a transcript of the episode at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Remember to show us some love with a glowing review, if you could, and we will see you next time.